Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 9, Agathocles and the Age of Alexander. Last time, we left off with the life of Timoleon, the Corinthian underdog who handed Carthage her most devastating defeat to date in Sicily at the Battle of the River Cremissus. After a period of generally indecisive fighting, Carthage signed a peace treaty with Syracuse in 338 BC, ending the Second Sicilian War. Sicily would enjoy an unprecedented 20-year period of peace and prosperity following Timoleon's rule, but historic developments in the east would pave the way for the third and last of the Sicilian Wars. Today, before we look at the rise of the final great Syracusan tyrant, we will briefly pause our story in the West to analyze momentous events in the East that would forever reshape the Mediterranean world. In 338 BC, around the same time that Carthage made peace with Syracuse and Timoleon retired into the Sicilian countryside, Philip II, King of Macedon, and his newly formed Macedonian royal army inflicted a crushing defeat on an alliance of Greek city-states led by Athens and Thebes, at the Battle of Chaeronea. His victory signaled the end of the independence of the Greek city-states, who now submitted to Macedonian rule. The Kingdom of Macedon consisted of what is now modern-day Macedonia, as well as most of modern Greece north of Thessaly. Although modern Macedonia has only existed since 1991, when it was carved out of the now-defunct Yugoslavia, the Kingdom of Macedon was already ancient by Philip II's time, having bordered the Greek city-states for centuries. Despite this close proximity to classical Greece, the Macedonians lived in an ambiguous gray area between the Greek and barbarian worlds. In typical Greek fashion, some such as Aristotle viewed the Macedonians as wholly barbarian outsiders, while others viewed them as semi-civilized or semi-Greek. Others, such as Polybius, held that the Macedonians were akin to the Greeks, but possessed different political and social institutions. Regardless of their origins, the Macedonians had found something of a genius in the form of Philip II. Born into the Macedonian royal family, Philip became king, or Basilus, in 359 BC. During his first few years in power, Philip began a reorganization of the Macedonian military that revolutionized warfare in the Mediterranean. Although we risk a slight detour here, since Philip's army would later be used by his son Alexander to conquer the known world in a few short years, and would replace the venerable hoplite in years to come, it's worth our while to pause here and discuss Philip's military innovations. As always, if you would prefer to skip this part, Feel free to skip ahead approximately five minutes to Alexander's conquests. As we remember from previous episodes, the principal fighting unit up until this point have been the hoplites in their phalanx formation. Although other units such as cavalry or skirmishers played roles as support for the heavy infantry, it was the hoplites who dominated the battlefields. Philip II who had spent time as a political hostage in Thebes, seized on the hoplite template as the model for his reforms. 
The Macedonians had typically relied on levies of farmers, shepherds, and craftsmen to fill out the ranks of their infantry. These men, typically ill-trained and poorly equipped when compared to their more prosperous Greek neighbors to the south, needed to be updated and outfitted if they were to become the backbone of Philip's army. First, Philip drastically increased the pay of the soldiers, allowing for the army to now be seen as a profession or career instead of as a seasonal occupation. Next, he replaced the hodgepodge of gear owned by the citizens with state-issued equipment in order to standardize and improve the quality of the men's weapons and armor. Now with a well-equipped body of professional soldiers who could spend the majority of their time in training and drill, Philip instituted his next plan. Forming his men into the phalanx formation, Philip increased the ranks of the phalanx to a minimum of 16 men across by 16 men deep for a total of 256 men per phalanx. This provided a much denser formation than the classical Greek phalanx and allowed for all the weight and momentum to be concentrated to the front of the formation. To maximize the offensive effectiveness of his men, Philip replaced the venerable Aspis spear with a 20-foot-long pike known as the Charissa. Due to the unwieldy nature of this extremely long pike, Philip exchanged the hoplon shield for a smaller shield known as the pelta, so that the soldiers could wield their pikes with both hands. Using these longer weapons, the first five ranks of the soldiers leveled their pikes towards the enemy, presenting a forest of spear points. The following eleven ranks held their pikes either at an angle or vertically, to both deflect incoming missiles and to obscure the enemy's vision of their back lines. With their new training, equipment, and formation, the Macedonian phalanx presented a nearly impenetrable force to the enemy, forming the anvil of the famed hammer-and-anvil strategy so crucial to the Macedonian military doctrine. If the newly revamped phalanx formed the anvil, the Macedonian cavalry were the hammer. Here, Philip had more to work with at the start than he had had with his infantry. Macedonian cavalry had been famous since they had fought in the Peloponnesian War 50 years before. These cavalrymen were drawn from the upper echelons of society, and the elite were known as the heteroi, or companions of the king. Using the heavy cavalry of the neighboring city of Thessaly as a model, Philip gave his men the best horses available and supplied them with bronze or lenothorax cuirasses, bronze greaves, and a broad bronze Boeotian helmet that looked suspiciously like a metal version of a colonial woman's bonnet. Armed with a two-handed Zeston lance and a broad curved sword known as the Copus, these men engaged the enemy at weak points as shock cavalry intended to break the enemy lines. To accomplish this, Philip trained his cavalry to maintain a well-organized and disciplined wedge formation basically a giant triangle, during the charge, maximizing the shock of the impact and shattering his opponent's line. Using his Macedonian phalanx to pin the enemy in place while his companion cavalry flanked them from behind, 
Philip created a winning strategy that would bring his son Alexander to world prominence. Besides revamping his pikemen and cavalry, Philip reformed other divisions of the Macedonian war machine, including hiring siege engineers to create new and better artillery pieces, as well as re-equipping and reforming other branches of the army, including his light infantry and skirmishers. I will resist the urge to discuss the remainder of Philip's military and political reforms, since this is a history of Carthage and not Macedonia. But suffice it to say that by the time Philip was finished, he had created a formidable professional fighting force that would have far-ranging repercussions in the Mediterranean. Backed by his new military force and exhilarated by his success against Greece, Philip must have felt invincible since he next turned his eyes on an even greater prize, the Persian Empire. Founded by Cyrus the Great in the mid-6th century BC, at its greatest extent this eastern behemoth stretched from the Balkans to India and had threatened to annex Greece for centuries. Only the strength of the Greek navy and the courage of her native hoplites had held the Persians at bay in the previous century. Other nations had not been as fortunate. Led by a crack corps of heavily armed cavalry, scythed war chariots, and a picked band of 10,000 soldiers known as the Immortals, so-called because if one of the men was killed or injured, another would immediately take his place, the Persians had toppled the Babylonians, Egyptians, and even Carthage's mother city of Tyre over the years. At one point, even the Macedonians had been forced to submit to Persia's rule when the Persians invaded Greece in the 5th century BC. Wealthy beyond belief due to the rich trade of the Middle East, Persia could summon seemingly countless hosts that defy even the modern imagination. Some estimates state that the Persians could put armies of a quarter of a million men into the field. The might of Persia makes Alexander's rapid and total success that much more impressive. For it would be Philip's son, Alexander, rather than Philip himself, who would lead the charge against the Persian Empire. Barely a year after his total victory in Greece, Philip was mysteriously murdered by one of his own bodyguards for unclear reasons at his daughter's wedding feast in 336 BC. Perhaps he was done in on the orders of one of his seven wives, perhaps by one of the disgruntled Greek city-states. We'll never really know. Nonetheless, Alexander took the reins of power in stride, and backed by his father's military force, crushed the Persians in two decisive battles. Following another twelve years of campaigning, by the tender age of thirty-one, Alexander the Great could claim an empire that stretched from India to Greece for himself. The sheer rapidity with which Alexander had built up its empire filled his neighbors with dismay. Never before had such a massive realm been achieved in so little a time, and now Western civilizations such as Carthage began to grow concerned on how they would handle this new great king of Asia. Alexander's treatment of Tyre was far from encouraging. As we remember, Alexander had leveled Tyre and sold most of the citizens into slavery, 
following a two-year siege. Curiously enough, a group of 30 emissaries from Carthage were present in Tyre during the siege and took refuge in the Temple of Melkart following Alexander's successful assault. Alexander allowed them to return home, but he warned them that when he was done in the east, he was coming for Carthage next. Understandably disturbed by this news, the Carthaginian Senate dispatched Hamilcar Rodanus, an accomplished diplomat, to Alexander's new capital at Babylon to discover when this new attack was coming. When Rodanus arrived, he prudently decided that presenting his credentials in the normal manner might brand him as a spy and end up with his head on Alexander's doorstep. So, Rodanus pretended to be a Carthaginian exile who desired to join Alexander's army. Befriending one of Alexander's generals, Rodanus gathered much useful information which he sent back secretly to Carthage. However, as the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. The Carthaginians, too, were fooled by Rodanus's feigned loyalty to Alexander, and on his return to Carthage, he was executed by the paranoid Senate. The Carthaginians must have breathed a sigh of relief when they learned of Alexander's premature death in 323 BC. Within the year, Alexander's empire dissolved into chaos. His generals, the Diadochi, divided up his conquests amongst themselves, each claiming to be the proper successor to the great Macedonian. Though cut short, Alexander's brilliant life forever altered the Hellenic world. In life, Alexander had carefully cultivated a public persona of the heroic warrior king, the epitome of everything it meant to be Greek. In death, his legacy would achieve legendary proportions, with many equating him with his mythical forebear, the demigod Hercules. Those Hellenic rulers who came after him, from the senior military commanders of his campaigns to the lowest minor prince, lived in the shadow of his greatness. Though they all tried to forge their own paths, in the end, they were forced to identify with and mimic Alexander's institutions and image, since he now signified the standard by which subsequent Hellenic kings would be judged. With the backdrop of Alexander in mind, we now come back to Sicily. Besides the Diadochi, who we can consider to be the top-tier rulers of the post-Alexandrian world, there existed a group of petty princes, tyrants, and adventurers, most of whom had little to no connection with Alexander, who yet desperately desired to join the inner circle of Greek royalty. Such was Agathocles, latest tyrant of Syracuse. Later ancient writers would mock Agathocles for aping the persona of Alexander in his coinage and public image in an attempt to portray himself as the Alexander of the West leading the Greeks against the Carthaginian barbarians, just as Alexander had done against the barbarian Persians. However later writers may have perceived him, in life, Agathocles proved himself to be no laughing matter. The following description of the man's character has come down to us. Agathocles the Sicilian, 
not only from the status of a private citizen, but from the lowest, most abject condition of life, rose to become king of Syracuse. At every stage of his career, this man, the son of a potter, behaved like a criminal. Nonetheless, he accompanied his crimes with so much audacity and physical courage that when he joined the militia, he rose through the ranks to become general of Syracuse. After he had been appointed to this position, he determined to make himself prince. One morning, he assembled the people and senate of Syracuse, as if he meant to raise matters which affected the republic, and at a prearranged signal, he had all the senators, along with the richest citizens, killed by his soldiers, and when they were dead, he seized and held the government of that city without encountering any internal opposition. It cannot be called prowess to kill fellow citizens, to betray friends, to be treacherous, pitiless, irreligious. These ways can win a prince power, but not glory. One can draw attention to the prowess of Agathocles in confronting and surviving danger, and to his courageous spirit in enduring and overcoming adversity, and it appears that he should not be judged inferior to any eminent commander. Nonetheless, his brutal cruelty and inhumanity, his countless crimes, forbid his being honored among eminent men. None other than Niccolo Machiavelli penned these words in his infamous treatise on politics, The Prince, published in 1532. Although notorious for his own neutral attitude towards the use of atrocities to gain power, even Machiavelli had to admit that Agathocles crossed the line. The son of a potter, Agathocles had risen through the ranks of the army but had twice been exiled due to trying to overthrow the oligarchic government of Syracuse. In fact, Agathocles may never have obtained the power he so desperately craved were it not for the state of the Carthaginian army in Sicily and the deeds of the Carthaginian commander of Sicily, Hamilcar. Following the debacle at the Cremissus, Carthage was once again forced to reconsider its approach to international affairs in Sicily. In typical Carthaginian fashion, one of the luckless generals responsible for the disaster was executed, a long-standing Carthaginian tradition that likely did not endear her to her commanders. Further, the Carthaginian nobility, seeing that new energy and talent was needed to carry on the war in Sicily, recalled Hanno the Great's son, Gizgo, back to Carthage to lead the war effort. Having escaped the terrible punishments suffered by his father and most of the male members of his clan, Gizgo had lived overseas in exile until the humiliated Senate summoned him to take command of the war against Timoleon. Gizgo strengthened both the fortress city of Lilibaeum and also the Carthaginian army in Sicily, and this had important ramifications later on. As we saw a few episodes back, Carthage had decided that it needed to keep a standing mercenary army in Sicily at all times to protect its interests due to the disordered and turbulent state of the island. Because of the nearly constant state of warfare on Sicily, the Carthaginian generals sent to oversee operations progressively gained a wide range of powers that stretched beyond their military sphere. <laughs> 
including the authority to negotiate treaties and form alliances on behalf of the state, although these would likely still have to be later ratified back in Carthage. It is also likely that these commanders operated military mints at Lilibaeum to mint the coins made of gold, silver, and electrum, a gold-silver alloy, to pay their mercenaries. Coins thought to have been minted in Lilibaeum bear not only the symbol of Carthage, a horse with a palm tree, but also inscriptions that speak of the people of the camp, commonly understood to refer to the Carthaginian military. Thus, it seems that these coins were minted by the Carthaginian authorities in Sicily solely for the purpose of paying their extensive mercenary force. By the 4th century BC, the Carthaginian generals possessed such broad powers that the Athenian politician Isocrates once quipped that the Carthaginians were ruled by an oligarchy at home, but by a king in the field. The increase of the general's power did not go unnoticed by the government back in Carthage. The rulers of Carthage had always been suspicious of their generals in the field, a side effect of their extensive use of mercenaries, who were typically more loyal to the general who was on the scene to pay them, rather than to the state which nominally employed them. Tensions were not improved by the fact that military commanders were chosen not by the elders of Carthage or the tribunal of 104, but rather by the whole mass of Carthaginian citizens in the popular assembly. This led to a fear of popular demagoguery, which consistently plagued surrounding Greek city-states such as Syracuse, and the fact that the Sicilian army now functioned essentially as a semi-independent force complete with its own financial and administrative system, did nothing to assuage these fears. To combat its general's power, the Tribunal of 104 instituted the tradition of a rigorous retrospective review of a general's performance in the field once he returned to Carthage. Obviously, these examinations were highly subject to hindsight bias, and many times they turned into unfair trials of a general's decisions while in the heat of battle or the uncertainty of a campaign. As we have already seen, Carthage had an entrenched tradition of harsh punishment of her commander's failures. Many of these men, though nobly born and extremely wealthy, ended their lives by being nailed to a cross following defeat in battle. These brutal punishments likely meant that there was little love lost between Carthage's government and her generals, and oftentimes this could have forced failed generals to attempt an overthrow of the government rather than risk the judgment of the tribunal. Even Diodorus Siculus, though an enemy of Carthage, paused in his narrative to comment on the injustice of this system. The basic cause of these coup attempts was the Carthaginian severity in inflicting punishments. In their wars, they advanced their leading men to commands, taking it for granted that they should be the first to brave the danger of the whole state. But when they gained peace, they plagued these same men with suits, bringing false charges against them through envy, and load them down with penalties. Therefore, some of those who are placed in positions of command fearing the trials of the courts, desert their posts, but others attempt to become tyrants. 
Like most Sicilians, Agathocles was likely well aware of the tensions that existed between the Carthaginian military and the government back home, and he lost no time in exploiting them. In the 320s BC, during his second bout of exile, Agathocles gathered an army of native Sicils and besieged Syracuse. Hamilcar, the Carthaginian general in Sicily, who was likely a relative of Gisgo, dispatched a force of Carthaginians at the request of Syracuse to protect the city from Agathocles. Although this may seem odd at first that the Carthaginians were willing to protect Syracuse, we must remember that Carthage's aims in Sicily were not to conquer the whole island, but rather to maintain stability in order that her trade could flourish. If Agathocles threatened to disrupt that trade, he would have to be dealt with, reasoned the Carthaginians. However, Agathocles, aware of Hamilcar's mistrust of the politicians back in Carthage, as well as his personal ambition to make himself tyrant of Carthage, convinced Hamilcar to enter into a secret pact to support Agathocles in Syracuse in exchange for support in Hamilcar's own power play. Through Hamilcar's mediation, the Syracusans agreed to allow Agathocles to return to the city after he took a solemn oath to observe the constitution. This lasted for all of a day, when Agathocles summoned the people to the assembly and then proceeded to massacre his aristocratic opponents, as described by Machiavelli, using 5,000 Libyan mercenaries on loan from Hamilcar. This dreadful work done, Agathocles then had himself declared tyrant of Syracuse and swore friendship towards the Carthaginians, a promise that, surprise, surprise, he didn't keep for long. Having consolidated power in Syracuse and marshaled a regular army, Agathocles then marched throughout Sicily, raiding and harassing Greek cities allied to Carthage, all while Hamilcar conveniently turned a blind eye. Carthage's allies complained to the Senate of Agathocles and Hamilcar's conduct. Although incensed by Hamilcar's obvious treachery, the Carthaginian government felt powerless to confront him openly, since he still had control of the mints and armies of Sicily. Rather, the Senate voted in secret to recall Hamilcar and condemn him for his actions, but they suppressed their judgment until they could recruit a fresh army under the command of another Hamilcar, this time the son of Gizgo, to relieve the offending Hamilcar of command. Isn't this great? Not only do we have to worry about multiple Hamilcars popping up in different centuries, but now they're in the same time period fighting against each other. Fortunately for us and the Carthaginians, the offending Hamilcar died before an open confrontation became necessary thus saving Carthage the trouble of having to fight a civil war, and us the trouble of having to play a who's who of 4th century Hamilcars. Though their problem general had been removed, the Carthaginians now had to clean up the mess he had made in Syracuse. Agathocles, firmly entrenched, became bolder by the day, attacking Carthaginian allies and even invading Carthaginian territory in western Sicily. The new Hamilcar, who for clarity's sake I will call Hamilcar Gizgo after his father, set sail for Sicily with a newly outfitted army to dethrone this new upstart adventurer. 
On that cliffhanger, we will conclude this episode. Next time, we will see how Hamilcar Gizgo fared in his conflict with Agathocles, as well as how Agathocles' career became even more treacherous and bloody than before. Until then, take care and read more history.